forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is it. I'm already recording, so this is how a podcast starts. Uh, thank you all for being here. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves on the microphone so that the listener knows what you sound like. Tell us who you are and where they may have seen your name on their television or movie screen. Um, and uh, Matt, let's start with you on this. Yeah, my name is uh, Matt Negretti. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I started off uh, in uh, animation. I worked for uh, Walt Disney TV Animation years ago. I'm going to date myself. It was like late mid to late 90s uh oh boy um but yeah i worked on some shows like uh, impossible was an animated show i worked on uh, pepper ann was one um i was a executive producer of a show called american dragon jake long um and then i made the transition a few years after that into um live action drama i worked on uh, white collar for the usa network and uh from there uh, i moved on to uh the walking dead so I was on there for about five years, I think. Um, and then now I'm a um, co-creator uh, along with Scott Gimple uh, and uh, showrunner of uh, a new companion piece, I guess we're calling it for of The Walking Dead. It's called uh, The Walking Dead World Beyond. So uh, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Great, thanks. And Nessa? Uh, well, I started out in visual art. Um, my uh, primary degree and my master's are in aesthetics and politics. So I did a master's in Berlin where I worked with uh, sculptors and filmmakers, art filmmakers um, who were doing really kind of experimental stuff. And that got me really interested in film. And from there, I moved back to Ireland and I started working in documentaries. Um, and out of that, then I really fell in love with filmmaking as a form. And as Alfred Hitchcock says, when you make documentaries, God is the director. So I got a bit sick of that and I wanted to move to the other end of the spectrum where you make drama and the director is God. So I started, uh, I made some short films and then I made TV dramas. Um, I won a BAFTA for a drama called Happy Valley. And uh, that got me an entree into American drama, which I absolutely love. So I've been working in American TV drama for the last couple of years. I did some shows with Marvel, including uh, the finale for Jessica Jones, which was really fun. And most recently, I've done a spy, spy thriller for Netflix called Hit and Run, which we were just finishing filming when, uh, when COVID hit. Um, and let's also mention um, your writing, direct, directing. Is this your feature debut? And this is my feature debut. How could I leave it out? So I wrote and directed <laughs> a feature film last year, uh, which got a cinematic release this year called Sea Fever, which I am delighted to say has actually done really well. And um, we've got a shout out from Stephen King, who loved it. And uh, it's, it's found an audience, which has been really exciting. It's great. It's on Hulu. And um, I watched it maybe a few months ago uh, and lost my mind over it and went on Twitter and immediately sought Nessa out to come talk to her about this movie uh, and then saw all the wonderful things that she's already directed. But we'll talk about all that in a minute. Um, Aaron, tell us uh, who you are and where you've been. Yeah. So well, my name is Aaron B. Kuntz. I graduated from Folsom University uh, after trying to get NYU and I didn't get in and I uh, went to my local local university and I goodness after that I, I kind of worked in freelance for a long period of time just whatever production elements I could get 
I was happy to get coffee for anyone and everyone for as long as I possibly could. And I uh, ended up kind of getting sucked into the gaming world where I became a producer for a number of video games for a long time, but was always writing on the side. Like writing was always kind of this thing that was bringing me back to where my passion was. And then started a company called Paper Street Pictures in 2012. We started making short films, just trying to get whatever we could out there. I ended up being a producer on a film called Starry Eyes. It was released by Dark Sky Films uh, with Alex Esso. And uh, that, that film, those directors went on to do the Pet Cemetery remake, Dennis and Kevin. Um, and then after that, I directed, uh, wrote and directed a film for NBC Universal called Camera Obscura that we released in 2017. Uh, that um, was a very trying experience, but uh, was a wonderful thing at the same time. I still get that Jerry Goldsmith music with the Universal logo that comes before my movie that curves around. So like, I'm fine. After that, it starts to go downhill. But uh, I felt really good at that time. And then uh, just this past year, I uh, was the creator and one of the, the key directors um, and kind of the, the lead producer on an anthology horror comedy called Scare Package that is on Shudder right now. That's done really well. And then I just released, uh, so this would be last month, I guess, when this is airing. Uh, I just released a, um, another feature film that I wrote and directed and produced called The Pale Door. That's a horror Western that I collaborated with uh, Joe R. Lansdale. And uh, we just released with RLJ Films and we've been in theaters and drive-ins and all that kind of stuff and going through that whole world. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think as of this um, release, uh, The Pale Door will be available on demand or wherever it's like going next. So folks can check it out there. Yeah, yeah. I think our, our DVD Blu-ray is coming out and yeah. then, yeah, and then Shutter will also, um, or excuse me, Scare Package will also move, have moved from Shutter. That'll be on on demand as well. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, and Scare Package is great. I really enjoyed that film. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of cool stuff going on in it. Um, it's silly. It's so silly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not dumb silly, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, I want to talk, uh, I think all of you have many things in common. Uh, and I sort of want to kick us off by talking about some of those things, um, among which is you all started someplace very different than the things that we know you for now. Um, and I want to talk about, and, and Matt, let's start with you in talking about going from, um, going from kids animation and kids TV to, you know, The Walking Dead. That's a huge yeah, difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Nessa, you also did a bunch of kids stuff early on that got you early attention as a director. So I want to sort of start there and, and then we can expand that conversation. Yeah, it's it, it is funny to think about like going from like you know the first the first series I was ever on was about a like a tween girl uh, like navigating the ups and downs of, um, of of growing up and then yeah go from that to to like zombies and death and gore and all that good stuff so yeah it really is like the whole like the whole gamut I feel like I've I've gone through but um, you know ultimately for me it's just like it all boils down to um, just telling interesting stories that are rooted in characters and trying to put yourself in the place of those characters. Um, you know, one of the first episodes of, of Pepper Ann was um, an episode I co-wrote um, with a good friend of mine, um, Nanachka Khan. And it was about um, a, a, a 12-year-old girl buying her first bra. Like, obviously, like, I am not a 12, I, I was never a 12-year-old girl. I've never bought a bra for myself. Um, but at the same time, it's just like, you kind of have to be, you have to put yourself into um, uh, the, the character uh, as, as best as you can. And 
And for me, it's like, it's the same thing. I've never lived through a zombie apocalypse, but I can imagine what I could have, how I could respond, um, you know, if the world was uh, kind of going to hell in the handbasket. And I, I firmly believe I would have died on day one. I wouldn't have survived. But but I think that sort of is just the, the common thread that, that goes through all of it is just the, the human experience and um, the emotion of what it's like to go through a zombie apocalypse or buying uh, uh, your first bra and it being mortified by, by, by that. So I do think that that is the, the one common um, denominator, but, but also just like I'll say too, it's just in terms of that journey, it was really also about um, as much as I loved animation, how freeing it was. Uh, I also found that, you know, at the time, uh, you know, Disney, uh, you know, it had just been sort of taking over. I was for ABC, but then um, the Disney Channel took it over. And there was, you know, some very specific mandates in terms of the type of animation they wanted to do. And and I was realizing that, um, that uh, you know, there are only so many kid-relatable stories I could tell about uh, about jealousy or taking two, two dates to the dance and getting caught. You know, it's like the Alex B. Keaton of it all. So, so um, I decided to kind of spread my wings and wrote a bunch of uh, specs and wrote a house spec again. I'm dating myself, um, and I was doing the research while I was there at uh, at Disney. And uh, I remember at one point someone handed me something I left in the printer, and it was research on diseases you could get from elephant dung. And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's me. That's me." I, I was doing uh, uh, writing my spec on company time, but um, but yeah. But so, like, I guess yeah. Long story short, it's the commonality of the human experience, but also. Um, for me, it's like the need to kind of challenge myself and mm -hmm. try something new at the same time. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And Nessa, I wanted to talk about some of those early experiences in both children's TV and documentaries. And like, how does that prepare you for writing um, a feature that is neither of those things? Well, I think it's a it's a very accurate response to say it's all about the human experience. I think that there's a great truth in that, isn't there? So for me, um, I, I knew a producer at the BBC and she had seen some of my work and she asked me to join her in setting up this new children's drama that was set in a care home. And I kind of approached it really from the, you know, Philip Pullman, who says there's no such thing as children's stories. There's just good stories and bad stories. And so our target audience was this audience from 10 to 15. And it was set in a care home. And the thing that I felt was okay, I remember being 10 and I remember being patronized by TV dramas. And I mean, I remember being patronized by TV dramas that were really saccharine sweet. And in fact, we've all been 10 years old and we all know that's a brutal world, right? It's a really brutal world. Often the adults around you are lying to you or if they're not lying to you, they're dissembling. And yet you have the full range of human experiences and you're, even if you have the safest, sweetest, most financially secure, emotionally secure life, you're still in the jungle of the playground. And, and all human emotion is there. Because we were set in a children's home, there were automatically going to be some quite high stakes stories that we could tell. So we had, a, it was actually a really enjoyable experience. We went out across the UK and searched for um, the best actors that we could find and then wrote stories to those actors. And so we ended up writing stories about bullying, about rivalry, about loss, about guilt. Uh, wrote a great story about the immigrant experience where we shot the entire thing in Yoruba. <laughs> These two kids are, are, um, are Yoruba kids and their parents have, have disappeared. And they're in London, uh, not speaking a word of the local language and what that's like, how that feels. Um, so it was, uh, 
it was incredibly challenging, of course, because you're dealing, I was dealing with experiences that I'd never personally had. Um, and we were trying to be truthful to our child and, and teenage audience while also, you know, not, not being too horrific either. Um, but it was a really enjoyable experience. And actually, we won a BAFTA for that as well. <laughs> so that was good. But prior to that, I had, uh, I had made a lot of different kinds of documentaries. I'd done arts documentaries and I'd done current affairs and investigative documentaries. And that was really interesting, particularly the current affairs and investigative stuff, because, of course, you're, you're again, dealing with people who are in the throes of very difficult circumstances. So we were, you know, we would go and interview people who were long-term heroin addicts. We'd interview the children of those heroin addicts. We'd interview um, people who were selling drugs, people who were long-term inmates in prisons, um, stories on prostitution. So uh, you're, you're face-to-face -face with people who have a very different life experience from you. And you have to build a bridge of trust really, really quickly. And you also have to understand what is authentic and honorable and dramatic in that story and then craft that story when you get to the edit. So I think for me as a filmmaker, what that gave me was a really, a good insight into how stories work because you have to construct the story as you're going along. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, Aaron, I wanna to talk to you about a similar thing, which is like, man, like you, you have put in the hustle and the hustle is real in this business. Um, and you know, you, it feels like just looking at your IMDb page, even like you played every role in production and at some point. And I feel like, you know, you may have known what you wanted to do from the beginning, that is to write and direct films, but getting there is no easy process. I'm curious to hear about the things you learned along the way that helped sharpen your storytelling. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, I learned just to listen, I think was a big thing and just observe the people around you and understand the ways that they interact. So I always joke with folks that I'm like, like anything you say or do may end up in a movie, you know, like there's a moment and uh, I just, I'll write it down. Like any, any weird interaction that I see with someone or something's really funny or really awkward or unique, I just write it down. And at some point I'm looking for character traits that are, that, that separate this person from it. And like in the pale door, for example, it's a gang of eight, you know, eight cowboys. And I wanted, you know, what I remember thinking about was how to parallel them to these witches, the story of cowboys and witches. And I was like, well, this is, these are familial stories, right? So how do I, how do I find a way to compare and contrast where these people who felt rejected in their lives and how they can come together? And, and it's not a good and evil, neither one of them are good and neither, they're, they're definitely both bad. And how do you, how do you find that balance? But I think you learn that by just observing those that are around you at all times and taking it all in. I read the news constantly, which can be very depressing, but I'm always looking for inspiration in the news. I'm looking for those, those weird stories, this, like, this, this thing that is stranger than fiction and, and, and able to kind of like work that in. Um, and then, you know, kind of back to, to, to what both of them were saying as well. I think there's something just with your stories that you're telling you know, I, we always challenge ourselves to, you know, whatever we work in genre, you know, so it's like remove the genre elements and then how is the human element, right? So it's, it's like, how does that still work? And I think that that happens if you're writing a comedy, you're writing horror, whatever it is, remove those elements. And then are you still engaged with the journey that this character is on? And are you still kind of, you know, feeling the plight and, and you're feeling their conflict? Because the conflict with 
our cowboys, for example, is not all the witches. It's it's what's happening in their lives. It's the dynamic of the brothers. It's I don't fit in. I'm new. You're old. You know what does this mean? And you have to have that. And those elements have to work without those other pieces. So I think, God, you know, so I don't know, but going back to the hustle and all that too, I think so much of it is you just have to kind of make this for yourself. You know, you just, you just can't, you can't count on anyone else that's going to open a door for you. And don't get me wrong. As soon as I can get a door open, I'm going to put a brick there and like, keep it open, just wave in all my friends as much as I can to come in and follow me. But, uh, but you're not always going to have those opportunities and you just have to find a way to make a door, you know, like I know it's behind this wall and I don't see a door, but I'm going to, you know, teach myself whatever I have to teach myself to, you know, knock this down and put, put a way to get myself in there. And that's what we've done. That's what we'll continue doing. And, uh, but at the same time, hopefully we can tell these like wild stories, learning from my friends, learning from the other talented writers that I'm, I'm lucky to be on this with and, and take this in and say, well, what habits did they have that I can, I can elevate the next thing that you have and just challenge yourself, you know, like everything we do, it's, I've got to, I've got to take it one step further on the next film. You know, like I, I'm, we have two movies that released this year. We're so lucky to have that happen. And I'm still in this weird phase of kind of imposter syndrome where I feel like, uh, you know, like, am I like, like what's, what's not there, what I've not accomplished. And all I see is the seams completely. And it's like, how can I remove those seams the next time? And uh, I'm trying to get better about relishing in that. But um, anyway, that's, that's kind of a, a ranting answer there. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think it's about observing. I think it's about listening and, and finding your place. And then once that, once you see that opportunity, you just, you go full bore at it in every, every way you can. Yeah. I think it's yeah. great advice. And, um, you know, it, it yeah. is a constant process of learning, right? Matt, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, I admire, like, Aaron, what you were saying, the, the, the idea of, like, of people that can't hustle. There are just people that are, like, that have that that innate um, ability to kind of work past any sort of, um, uh, any sort of uh, hesitation or any sort of, like, imposter syndrome. It's, like, I just admire that in people. Um, because, like, I feel like if I didn't have agents, um, I would just be living in my basement and I would never leave the house. Because sometimes it's so easy to get crippled by by just those seeing only the seams and not seeing the bigger picture and not just, um, you know, kind of having an idea. And like, it's always good, I think, to question, like, how can this be better? How can I make it better? But also not be crippled by thinking like, this isn't good enough. And so it's kind of, for me, it's just like, um, like that's always been something I've kind of had to go uh, deal with to a degree. But so to be able to, to look at someone and sort of see them hustle in that way and just sort of, um, you know, even if it's like stumbling and failing, but failing forward and, and learning from those experiences. I think that's such a, a tremendous thing to, to have. Fail yeah, big. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, fail big. It's, yeah. it's an interesting thing too. I mean, that dynamic and, and it's something we hit on a lot on this podcast that, you know, being a writer, making a thing uh, is such a balance between ego and humility, right? You need, you need great, uh, you need great uh, depths of both. Um, and I do feel like, you know, for you, Matt, as a showrunner and for Nessa and Aaron as writer-directors, um, you know, there has to be a part of you that says to the people around you, I know what this is supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear from all of you about, like, 
making that clear and not showing them the part that's the part that wants to hide in your basement and just works up work on the script the whole time. <laughs> it's an interesting question, isn't it? And I think, you know, Matt, you're absolutely right that it, it is a delicate balance. It's a tightrope walk. Because on the one hand, you're right, it's really important to look at your own work and be able to assess where the weaknesses are and, and address those and work at those. But I don't know about you, but I think it's actually extremely difficult to step away then and see where the strengths are. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you're, you're constantly trying to get better. You're constantly trying to improve it. Um, and I think it's Andy Warhol who says the thing about making something, about conjuring something out of nothing, is that it takes this enormous amount of creative, psychological, physical, emotional energy. And it feels like you tear your heart out and you leave it there pumping on the table. And he says, the awful truth is almost anybody can tell you how to make it better. <laughs> and that's true as well. It's something that, uh, that I think we all learn as, as writers that, um, you know, it's that process of getting notes and, and not all notes are, are perfect notes, but all notes are addressing something that feels like a weakness to that person in the story. Um, and therefore, all notes are intrinsically of themselves useful and worth kind of turning around in your mind, even if it's to reject them ultimately. They're all worth kind of um, addressing and absorbing and thinking about. Um, apropos of being a director and walking into the room and going, this is what this is. I, I do think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to have a very clear idea yourself of where it is that you want to go, what the destination point is. Um, and uh, I, my own feeling, I don't know if you agree with this, Aaron, my own feeling is that as a director, your job is you are the curator of ideas. You are the curator of everything that's coming to you. And so one of the most important things that you can do is tell everybody everything you're thinking all the time so that everybody knows and even if it's if what you're thinking is, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it should be blue or green or if it should be that that you say that out loud, because actually, the more that you tell everybody your thought processes all the time, the more that the people around you have confidence in you and have confidence in your creative leadership. I think it's um, it's sometimes an error that young directors do that they feel like they need to be able to answer every question and they feel like they need to be bulletproof and uh, intransigent and rigid on set and that that's the thing that's going to make them look like they know what they're doing whereas in fact of course a great director bends like a reed a great director has a very clear idea of the end game and of what it is that they're trying to get to but the route to get there they will always be open to every possible idea that's coming in I think there's a, a really interesting parallel between directing and writing because you have to come with all of these different ideas and it's this amalgamation of this. It's like coming together at this one particular point. And, and I think there are times where even if you're a little unsure, you have to kind of like be a hundred percent behind something, but you want to be open to number one, the people that are around you and, and to, to be able to facilitate all that, all of the kind of craziness that's kind of coming in at that time. But I mean, I can just, 
the amount of times, especially as an indie film, you know, director in particular, the amount of times that like I have, I know exactly what I want. I have storyboarded it. I planned it all out and I get there and then Murphy's Law comes in and is like, nope, none of this is going to happen the way that you want. And you have to at that moment, you know, and it's okay to say, look, guys, I don't know. Give me a few minutes. Like, it's okay. I'm going to take five minutes. Just like, let me clear my head. If you have an idea, like, tell me. But like, I'm trying to, I'm going to work this out and I'll, I'll make it happen. And, and the one thing I can say, I'll, I'll at least always do is I'll stay calm. Even if it's kind of like a fire going on in my head, I will always remain calm. I always like have this demeanor. I mean, I remember there was, we had, you know, you're always shooting out of order a lot of times. And we had shot the ending of the phone. And this is in the pale door. And our, our actors are covered in blood. And there was a scene prior to, of course they are, if I'm making the movie. Uh, there's a scene prior to this where they were supposed to get into a blood pit. Well, we had built the blood pit. We had the liner and all this stuff that was done. We had storyboarded it out. It was this big kind of set piece. It was a lot of fun, but it had flooded uh, because we also had Category 5 tornadoes and we had hail and we had flooding on this shoot because that happened too. I lost uh, four days of shooting out of a 25-day shoot. So, uh, you know, how do you, how do you make that happen? And that becomes writing because at those moments, you're going back and you're like, how do I make this work? So now I have an ending of a film with actors that have to be covered in blood. I now have a blood pit that's been flooded and now snakes have gotten in. We don't have the liner. We cannot, the, the stunt person's not allowing us to, to go put my actors in. And I shouldn't be allowed to put my actors in there to be clear. And uh, so now it's like, well, how, and, and we only have two days left to shoot. So now I have to get everybody covered in blood and, but I can't put them in the blood pit. And, and everybody's like, what are we? And I mean, people were completely panicked. My producers are just running around. I'm like, everybody calm down. It's Okay. Well, we're going to finish this scene and at lunch, I'll figure it out and whatever. And I came back and I said, okay, we're going to rent. Here's what we're doing. I'm like, we're going to rent a water truck. We're going to rent this. We're going to rent this. We're going to rent this. We're in the woods and it's going to rain blood. They're like, why is it going to rain blood? I'm like, it's witches. They have, they're doing all these powers all the time. We're seeing all the stuff that's happening and he's going to lift the gun and they're going to think he's going to kill himself because they don't want him to do that. And then it's going to rain blood. And they're like, that's genius. And I'm like, great. Let's go. And I'm like, I really hope this works, <laughs> you know? And then now I talk to people and I'm like, wow, I love the blood rain. Like, when'd you come up with that? And it's like, uh, while well, I was eating lunch on the day before. And producers- weeks beforehand, I thought the metaphorical resonance for this scene is. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll build up the whole thing for what that is. I mean, now you get to reappropriate it in this wonderfully pretentious way if I wanted to. Uh, but the reality is I'm just scrambling. You know, I'm just completely scrambling. <laughs> and my poor producers are, we're in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. They're literally going to all of the surrounding stores to get all of the red food coloring could to fill, you know, uh, it's, it's absurd. But that's, you have to, again, that's writing in those moments. So you're throwing these curveballs and you're, and you have to listen to your characters in your writing too. Your characters will throw you a curveball. They're like, whoa, I feel this character pulling me in this direction. And you have to find a way to, to roll with that punch, like see that out a little bit and what that could be. So, you know, leaving yourself open and again, listening, right, I think is just so important. So you're listening to what your characters are telling you in the writing, what your crew's telling you, what your cast is telling you, how they're feeling. And, you know, I still have to make this happen. And as long as you're calm and you're, and you're listening to those people around you and you're trusting the folks that you have, like you can make that happen. But uh yeah, it's a little touch and go sometimes, though, in the, in the process. But you've touched on something really interesting there, which I think is definitely something that exists both in writing and directing, and that is make choices. 
you know, as a, as a, as a writer, the fun thing is, like you say, when the character is pulling you one way and it, it you know, it doesn't fit the schematic that you have in your head, you just go, well, I'm just going to make that choice. I'm going to let that character escape from prison or not escape or whatever it is that doesn't feel like it fits the schematic and make the choice and boldly commit to the choice and see where it takes you. Uh, because I had a, I had a directing uh, teacher once who gave me the best piece of advice, which was, you should ruthlessly follow your whims. Uh, and which is, I think, what you're saying as well. Make bold choices. If you feel something pulling you in a direction that feels a bit can, like it's intuitive and, and it doesn't seem to be logical, but it, you're really drawn to it, just make the bold choice and do it. Because it's only when you don't do that that you regret it. Yeah. Well, that goes back to your point about notes, too. In that if you get a note, that note could lead you in a direction that your first instinct is like, what are they talking about? They have no clue. They don't get, I got it in my head. They don't get it. And you have to push that aside and say, no, it's coming from a place where they're trying to help the movie. There's something that's pulling them. And it might not be that the note is a bomb needs to go off at this place. And you're like, why would a bomb go off? But they're not saying that. They're actually saying you need to relieve the tension for this reason, or you need you need this turn to happen. And if you can, you can get to the core of what that note is and you listen and you allow yourself to just explore it. So we always say like, just explore the note, whatever it is, just explore it. Like, okay, that sounds crazy. What would happen? And maybe it doesn't take very long and you're like, never mind. We explored it, that's not gonna work. But sometimes beautiful things can come out of that. And they can open yourself up to what it is because you know, as much as we have to make all these decisions, us, again, it was, it was perfectly said how you were saying before, we don't always have all the answers and you, it's a collaborative process. So listen to these people around you and maybe you can, you'd be surprised with why, where it ends up going and what it ends up being from there. Yeah, I yeah, want to talk and, about and, that. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Oh, no, just, just really quickly. Um, yeah, it's just, and I think too, even if like going down a certain road means you end up hitting a dead end, at least you like exactly what, um, what you guys were saying, which is like, at least you try and you know that you explore this option. But it's also, I think about finding out why something doesn't work. Like this was a good road to go down. Here's why this doesn't work. I think that in itself can help solve whatever the problem was that you were, that led you down that road to begin with. Well, and I think, you know, the, the discovery process um, is such an important part of why these things feel alive when they do, you know? Um, and I wanted to talk about Walking Dead World Beyond um, because, I mean, you you created the show uh, with Scott Gimple, who has been, you know, part of the Walking Dead family for many yeah. years. Um, and so I imagine, you know, the two of you had a plan, but I'm always curious to hear about what happens to that plan when you hire a writer's room. Yeah, um, it's it's funny. Yeah, he, uh, you know, Scott during season nine had approached me about this um, this project that he had an idea for, and he was looking to expand the universe. And you know, he had had the bare bones sort of structure of what this show could be. And uh, you know, so we started talking about it. And you know, when he sort of pitched me the um, you know the sort of like sort of teenage uh, coming of age aspect of it, like that's when I just kind of realized, like, though this is for me. Like I. I had, uh, you know, grown up in the 80s. I was an 80s kid and I love Stand By Me. And so the idea of like framing that sort of uh, quest uh, in a zombie apocalypse um, just seemed like, you know, too, too good to, uh, to turn down. Um, and so, so, yeah, like we, like season one, I'm actually neck deep in season two right now. So I have to retrain my, my brain to, uh, to season one. But um, yeah, I was always conceived as a, as a kind of a road trip, I guess you could say, a quest. And 
Um, and the, we had a we had a pretty good structure of what uh, season one was going to be. Um, but so really for bringing in a writer's room, it was really about um, the things I think we just we, we've kind of uh, touched on uh, already. It was like, here are the ideas that I feel strongly about. Um, here are the things that the dynamics I'm going to explore. Here's the things I think would be cool to see happen. And the writers just kind of, uh, you know, went with it and they were able to kind of work with me in terms of figuring out the structure for the season and breaking things down into um, the individual episodes. And, uh, you know, it really brought some things to life that like I never would have thought of before. And like, there were some things and some things in, in the way they were executed that originally were not the, what I was thinking. And it was, it was, it was a certain writer taking an idea, taking it in a totally different direction but still keeping um, the vibe of what I was going for. And that's what I think like what a great writer does in a writer's room is they bring themselves um, to the story. And it really is about like them heightening um, the thing I pitched to them. And, uh, and, and really in general, I think, um, you know, for season one and for season two, the great thing about having a writer's room is, is getting those different perspectives and those different uh, viewpoints and, um, you know, even if there are pitches that don't quite end up going anywhere, it's just like, I see why, why you made that pitch. I see where that's coming from. But so the instinct that inspired that pitch is correct, even if that wasn't the right pitch. So, um, and, and there have been so many things brought to my attention of just, you know, I've been in the Walking Dead universe, uh, you know, since season four, and it gets very easy as a writer to be like, oh no, this is the, the beat where we, we do an action scene that's like this. And then, so it's so great to have that fresh perspective come in uh, where it's just like, or here's something different. What if you do something else? And, and that was a, a great thing. I'll give a, you know, Scott a lot of credit for is he was one of the ones pushing me to like, make it more different. Like this does feel like something that, you know, we've, we've done versions of this before. How can we make this feel even fresher, even more different? And so to be able to have that freedom and to work with new writers that hadn't necessarily worked in the Walking Dead universe before. Um, it really, I think, helped bring things to um, a whole new level and, and just brought things to the forefront that never would have occurred to me otherwise. So, um, yeah, I was just a, a huge fan of, of just making sure that everyone has a voice in the room. And, and again, even if it's a pitch that doesn't go anywhere, it's like I always appreciate the thought behind the pitch. Yeah, that's so something. Sorry, go ahead. Well, see, that's one of the best endorsements possible right there, possibly for uh, for more diverse writers, right? So as a producer, and I'm producing projects for other people right now, and, you know, folks ask about, you know, diversity and this and what, what does it mean? It's like, well, why are you looking for these diverse writers? Are you just trying to check a box? And it's like, no, because they have a perspective that I don't have. And we're, and you're, you, everybody hears from writers, like, to, to talk about your personal story and, and talk about what's there. And it's like, I can't write about what you can write about. And, and so I need you to help inform me new ways to have these characters enjoy, you know, go in these journeys that I never would have thought of having them take that direction because that's not my experience, that's your experience. So it's about bringing in those experiences that allow us to not get so formulaic because we are so used to the same people that look like myself, you know, as a straight white male, that, you know, that are like, this is what we do. And that's why diversity, I think, matters so much right now, because it's, it's about 
finding a way to, you know, to, to see what that, what those opportunities are that you never would have thought of because that's not our experience. So just that same thing. It's about not being, having that writer that's not in the Walking Dead universe gives you something like, whoa, I never thought we could have gone there. That's the same thing as bringing in a writer from, from, from a place that, that you often been to just in, in any aspect. So I just thought it was like an interesting endorsement for that at the same time. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that is, that is the real gold uh, you know, that we don't engage in diversity just purely. Well, we do because it's the right thing to do and the moral thing to do, but also because it enriches all of us. You know, it's so easy for all of us to get stuck into our own narrow perspectives. And having people with very radically different life experience around us and different bodies you know, whether it's the amount of melanin in their skin or how they wear their gonads or how able-bodied or, or non-able-bodied they are. You know, I think for me, the other side of that is, uh, you know, it's, it's very important that everybody is permitted to speak their truth because it can be very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as, as leaders, you know, if you're, if you're running the writer's room or if you're the director, that the most important thing is that people feel that they have permission to tell the truth because however diverse the people around you are, it's still up to you to offer permission um, for what might be uncomfortable truths to bubble up to the surface. And it is going to be uncomfortable and there are people who are going to be made uncomfortable by it, but that's the joy of it. That's the thrill of it. And that's where the creativity starts to really bear fruit. Um, I want to talk about horror for a few minutes. Um, Something I really admired and liked about um, all three of the projects that we're sort of focusing on here um, is that while they were dark, while they were great horror, they never felt hopeless. They never felt uh, like it was taking me to a place from which there was no return. And that is not always the case in horror. Um, so I'd like to talk about that a little bit and sort of your perspective on horror um, and putting that on the screen. Uh, anyone who wants to jump in? Well, my own uh, uh, approach to the my, my route into this kind of storytelling really comes from, you know, when I was a kid and uh, I was inadvertently exposed to German expressionism and um, that idea that you could tell a story where you get a big fat metaphor and you put that big fat metaphor into the middle of your film and that's what your film the fulcrum of your film is and that seemed to me to be so exciting and it seemed to me to be two things first of all it's how we think isn't it you know that's what dreams are dreams are a way of thinking and dreams are full of three-headed monsters and you know drowning at sea and all of those things and zombies and you know, they're, they're, an art- they're a concrete articulation of something that's really human and really honest. And as you guys were saying, they're a concrete articulation of actual, proper, grounded, primal human experience. And so that really kind of woke me up going, this is what cinema is. This is what cinema is for. It's for telling the truth using the ways that we actually think. I remember years ago seeing Adam McGoyan talk about that and he said there's two kinds of filmmakers there are filmmakers who are like Jean Renoir, who uh, put the camera in the room and what they want to do is say to you, this is completely unmediated. This is the camera recording reality. 
and, and trying to make reality look like it's just unfolding in front of the camera, right? And then the other kind of filmmaker is the Fritz Lang kind of filmmaker who is clearly, you know, coming out of German expressionism where he says, I'm going to tell you the truth, but I'm going to tell you the truth by building you a parallel universe that is like your dreams. And that way I'm going to tell you the truth about what it feels to be human. And I, that seemed to me to be a really, really terrific way to use cinema. And I think the best horror, that's what it is. It's telling us something that's really true in a language that we already understand because it's the language of dreams. And so for me, certainly with Sea Fever, what I wanted to do was I wanted to tell a story about taking responsibility. You know, the, the story is rooted in the idea of the ecological crisis and climate crisis. And the fact that, you know, we all consider or, or we're encouraged to consider ourselves as atomized individuals who are all, you know, competing with each other to try to win somehow over each other. Um, but actually the climate crisis and also sadly our current COVID crisis reminds us that we're not individuals. Actually, we rely on each other and we're enmeshed in a broader system. And if we don't all work together as integral and dynamic parts of that system, the whole thing falls apart. So it was a way of articulating that through this kind of primal language of dreams um, to say something that feels primal and emotive about taking responsibility for each other and connecting. That's beautiful. It makes me want to watch Sea Fever again, which I love, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I will say, you know, so we talk about, you know, speaking your truth and finding the truth and then also talking about personal stories and uh, speaking specifically about The Pale Door. You know, this is very much a story about my brother. My brother's a recovering addict. Um, he's he's an, once an addict, he's always an addict. Right. That's a thing he's always going to be dealing with. And I know that. And so I've always felt like I was taking care of him. And at the time of writing this, it's a lot about two brothers and it's about an older brother who's taking care of his younger brother and then, uh, and, and, and trying to kind of like shoulder him from this. But I have to realize that I have to like, let him be his own person at the same time. And there's part of that. And then there's also a very conflicted relationship that I have with my own father, who I'm now estranged from. And I remember my writing partner, Cameron Burns, you know, this is something that, uh, I mean, even in Scare Package, there's like jokes about a father not being there. I mean, like there's like father stuff shows up in everything I write, like somehow, way, way, shape or form, it shows up. But uh, I remember Cameron at one point, you know, he was reading a new draft. And he's like, so you're just writing about your brother and your dad, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, God, I am. It's like really coming through in this one, right? He's like, yeah, this is like really your brother and your dad. And originally I had an ending that was a lot sadder and was very dark. And I just did not, it wasn't feeling right because what I was working through was my own problems and my own demons of this. And it becomes this cathartic thing. And the characters make decisions that are actually me telling myself to make these decisions, you know, and about letting go of the hate and letting go of these like fears that I have. And I'm, I'm saying it, you know, and my, my mom and my brother cried when they watched it because they're like, oh my goodness, like this is, this is what you're working at. But then, you know, to the rest of the public, it's like, ooh, Cowboys and Witches. It's like from Dust Till Dawn. And I'm like, yeah, sure mm -hmm. it is. But, uh, but I have, you know, like that metaphor is just like, front and center. I mean, it's pretty, pretty out there, you know? And so I completely agree with that style of filmmaking and I completely agree with where that is, but I had to find, I, I, we talk about horror with heart and that's something that matters to me because it comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of like connecting with these characters and having, having people that you care about. They can still be bad characters. You know, I, I don't believe in this idea that your protagonist or whatever, like on the unlikable protagonist, I think is a bad note, you know, and what that is. I think that's okay. You just have to relate to them. 
You just have to understand why they're making and doing some of the bad things they're doing. So if you relate to them, then, and you're trying to find the truth, then with this, it became, you know, it's like, well, no, this can be heartfelt and we can find a way to make this heartfelt. And, and that was part of me kind of saying, I need to work through this. So I'm going to work through it in a movie. And now I have to talk about it more. And, and in doing so, that'll help me, you know, and the next, and the film that I'm writing right now, you know, is about that kind of the next phase of the journey. And I'm realizing that like, whoa, now I'm writing about that. And, uh, you know, but that's, that's what makes it special for me. And then, and then you find out that it resonates with other people, then that's the best feeling in the world. We're like, whoa, this spoke to me. And it's like, whoa, I was just writing about me. I didn't realize that someone else is going through this. I mean, I know they are, but you're just like, so in your zone. And, uh, then when somebody tells you like, this is, you know, my brother and I, and this thing or whatever, and it's just like, oh, that's it. That's why like, I'm it. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You know, that's all I needed from that point going forward. That's great. Yeah, no, I was just going to chime in on, on what uh, Aaron was saying in terms of um, horror with heart. I think that's, I love that phrase because that's, that's how I actually look at um, The Walking Dead. Like, like if you look at the franchise in general, how it started off with um, Rick looking for his family, the goal was out of love for his family. And, and even in general, you know, when we're writing, um, I don't think this is the point, when we're writing Rick, off uh, this show um, a couple seasons back, you know, it was really about like, you know, there are a lot of discussions in the writer's room about like, what does this departure mean for Rick? And ultimately uh, one of the last things, I think maybe the last thing he says on screen is I found them, meaning he found his family and it wasn't just Carl. It wasn't, um, um, it wasn't Lori. It was like this greater group of people that became his family. And so that's sort of what I took to heart in terms of talking to Scott about this, new show is like, you know, the goal of our characters uh, in World Beyond is out of love. It's about these two sisters that are looking for someone that's very important uh, for them, uh, to them. And it's this quest based out of love. And it does get dark and there's some kind of, you know, twists and turns along the way, obviously. But but like at, at its core, it's just like, I don't know, there is this sort of emotional component to it. And, and as I approach season one in terms of the writing, the thing that was my number one goal is like, I want the audience to care about these characters. I want the characters wants to be the, the uh, audience's wants. And, and, you know, it's funny just to kind of do a, a quick kind of step back uh, when, when this is us for started airing, like I had heard about it. Oh my gosh, get your Kleenex is ready. Um, you're going to cry. And so I started watching it like with this air of skepticism, like I'm not going to fall for that business, like Kleenex, Kleenex, and I started watching it and it's just like, I was like wiping tears by the end of the pilot. And then I was like, all right, this is us. You're not going to do this to me again. And so I watched the second episode, same thing. And finally, I just like embraced that. Like, why do I, why am I fighting this? It's a good show. And I, I really enjoyed it. And so um, I love sort of that emotional component. How can you mine a scene or a character or what they're going through for, for maximum emotion. And so, um, you know, that is sort of, in a way, it's a weird way, uh, a model of, of uh, some of the storytelling that we're doing in this show. So, um, yeah, and, and I guess the one thing too I'll say is, is you know, thinking about like horror, it's like, I almost think of the world beyond The Walking Dead in general, more of like a survivalist trauma with horror elements in it. But, but even those horror elements are so important. And, you know, one of the first lessons I learned as a writer on The Walking Dead was really about like, don't pause the story for a horror sequence or for an action sequence. 
Um, in a lot of ways, it's like a sex scene in a movie. It's like you have to justify it and it needs to keep the story going. Um, and so whenever there is an action sequence, it's like, how are we forwarding the progression of this character's story? Uh, and what are the twists and turns within the action um, that we can use to justify uh, the horror elements of it? So that's always something that I keep in mind as I construct these sequences and the action sequences within these episodes. Yeah, and that's great advice for anyone writing genre, I think, is like, don't pause the action for that action sequence, for that horror sequence, right. for whatever it is. Yeah, that's that's really smart. Um, I want to wrap up by, first of all, let's get the plugs, everyone. Um, <laughs> Walking Dead World Beyond premieres on the 4th of October on AMC. Um, and it's yeah. great. Folks should watch it. Um, there is, I will say, Matt, a... There's a lightness to this series that the other Walking Deads haven't had so much uh, and that I feel like was really missing. Uh, and so it, it becomes more of a pleasure to watch. Um, so congrats on that. Uh, the Pale Door. The Pale Door is out on uh, DVD Blu-ray, I think the 6th of October. Correct. And folks should check it out. Um, there's, there's great, like, Cowboys and Witches, right? Like, it's an easy pitch. <laughs> It is. Uh, it is really well done. Um, and finally, Sea Fever is out on Hulu now. Um, what else do you have coming up, Nessa? Anything you can tell us about? Uh, yeah, the Netflix project Hit and Run is uh, it's delayed, but it will be coming out next year. Oh, good, great. Um, so we'll wrap up just by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your uh, family, whoever you're trapped in your home with? Uh, and Matt, let's start with you. Oh boy. Um, I'm watching a whole lot of nothing right now. My work is uh, super, super insane. Um, it's taking up all my time. Uh, so in the last few months, really nothing. Um, uh, the, the one thing I'll say, like I did like, you know, right when the, um, the, the, the sequester at home, all that happened, uh, I did take advantage of that. Um, so there, there were some things in the early summer I did watch, um, um, normal people was something I thought was, uh, really, really great. Um, and just, yeah, in terms of like, of, of, I, I went in sort of not watching, um, or not knowing anything about it, but like, again, that's an example of like, like there were like some serious like sex scenes in there, but like, they were so important to the character and the story moving forward that like, that like I, that also got me thinking about, uh, you know, how we sort of need to do the same thing. Um, with horror and with the action um, within within things of our show. There is like a, a weird sort of parallel there, but I just love that sort of rawness and, and the realness of that. And I didn't read the book and I know that some people like prefer the book, but but I just, I just thought on its face of it, I, I really love that. Um, and around the same time I got into Dickinson, I binged that in a day and I thought that was delightful. Um, I love that delightful. so much. Yeah, exactly. Um, Nessa, what are you watching? Well, first of all, I have to give a shout out to normal people because obviously that's set in Dublin in my alma mater, Trinity. Oh. And uh, somebody made the quip that normal people does for Trinity. What Brideshead Revisited did for Oxford. So we're hoping that those, uh, those applications are going to be coming in. <laughs> mm -hmm. Although there was nobody so well-dressed or indeed muscly in Trinity uh, when I was there, I have to say. But uh, I've been watching The Plot Against America, which has been uh, disturbing, but brilliantly made um, uh the the tv show or the actual plot against america 
Which is which? We're watching both. <laughs> amazing, amazing writing from David Simon, of course, and absolutely beautifully brought to life by Nikki Spiro. Um, and then in film, I absolutely fell in love with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is uh, a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, setting up a parallel world and then telling a story using a great big metaphor at the centre of that world. And I've also been going back over Christopher Nolan's uh, oeuvre in advance of going to see Tenet next week. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, so goodness. Uh, I've also been, it's been very busy. So we released Scare Package in June and we had this movie in August. So this time I've been, I've been doing a lot of writing and really kind of digging into stuff. I've had some opportunities come my way. So I'm trying to like, you know, mine those ideas. But as far as, so I haven't been able to watch a lot. I mean, recently I finally had a little more time and I started watching the HBO, HBO documentary series, uh, I Will Follow You Into the Dark, based on Michelle McNamara's book, which is just an amazing book. And I just think is a, a really, really haunting kind of uh, documentary exploration of the Golden State Killer and what's there. And, and, it's, and it's beautiful in that it's not one of these, you know, I, I do like true crime. I, I, am, I am a fan of that. I am writing a serial killer based film right now. So that is definitely applying. But but what I like is that it doesn't feel exploitive. It's not about this, uh, you know, taking these horrible, you know, incidents and like and, and showing them in that light. It's about talking about the human emotions of the people that have lived through it and gone through it. And then also Michelle's like tragic journey and like what happened to her, um, you know, and just like trying so hard, like working so hard. So, I mean, making the pale door, I actually fainted and had to go to the hospital um, because I was not sleeping and I was working so hard. This is in post when we were trying to make deadlines, um, you know, for festivals and stuff at that time around the new year. And, and, you know, it just was one of those wake up calls I had to have of like, like, what am I doing to my body? And like, am I really, you know, I have to listen to myself, you know, and what that exhaustion is. And, and, and it made me, and I, and I realized I was making bad decisions because I was like, so, you know, it wasn't even helping the film at that point. So you have to do that. And, and I think watching, you know, this series has, you know, and seeing like what she's going through, it's like, Oh, it's like really hitting home. Um, so there's that. And then I also started watching, uh, the last dance on, uh, Netflix, the, the Michael Jordan documentary series, just cause it's just, I loved like the nineties NBA, you know, that whole thing that was going on. I thought was really fascinating. Um, and then as I'm writing right now, I've kind of gone back and I'm, I've become pretty obsessed with Jordan Peele's us. We've like reached a point now where I've watched it so many times. I think there's so many beautiful things that are happening and I keep like unearthing more and more stuff. I actually did an entire podcast just about that film. Uh, so <laughs> I was just, I was just so obsessed. So that's something that uh, I just think the way that he is telling, you talk about the metaphor, goodness, you know, that's in that film and like what he's, what he's going through and what happens um, that I think is really beautiful and, you know, dealing with, especially, and it becomes more relevant, you know, as things are continuing to kind of happen um, in society today. So there's that. And then right now, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Black Lives Matter, you know, defund the police. Um, I think that we, there's an opportunity right now where we still need to be continuing to stay active. We continue to be like thinking about what is going on and, uh, you know, injustice for Brianna Taylor and just, you know, there's more, there's like, we're not done. Like we're not done yeah, and yeah. there's so much more work to do. And, uh, you know, so that takes up, if I have a little bit of free time, I wanted to go to that right now. Yeah. That's great. Um, thank you all so much for being here, uh, and talking about all this stuff. This was terrific. Uh, I'm such a fan of all of you. Uh, we really appreciate you chatting and good luck with all the next stuff. We're excited to see what it is. Thank you so much. It's yeah, been a this pleasure. was so great. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.